Thank you. I want to thank you all also. I'm confident we'll have what we need to, to send tomorrow. And I want to encourage you individually to be a small part of that because it's better for the saints, many saints, to give a little to meet a need because it makes those brethren more accountable and encouraged in the work knowing that people on this side of the world are supporting them as opposed to one person giving a big chunk or one church. Okay, And just because the church gives doesn't mean you can't be a part of that individually. And make no mistake, if, if the church gives, but you're not a regular part of giving to the church, don't go around acting as if you're giving because the church gives if you're not tithing. So that's something to keep in mind when we tithe and give our part to God. You know, 10% was an Old Testament uh, guideline given. And when you go to the New Testament, the principle is such that 10%, you know, it, it, it appears as if that's minimum. Paul the Apostle said, give as much as God purposes on your heart. So we need to be willing to give, particularly to works that are doing the gospel. And we come alongside, it's what John says in 3 John, makes us fellow helpers to the truth. And I wouldn't stand up here and exhort you folks if my life, wasn't a picture of giving. I could make excuses like some people do that I'm a missionary, so you know I'm trusting the Lord, so I'm doing the Lord's work, so I'm not responsible to give. And I'd say, no way. You know, if I wasn't living, if my wife and I weren't living and giving in our lives, living to give in our lives, and so cheerfully, I'd have no right to stand here. So I wouldn't exhort the brethren to give if I wasn't willing to give myself. So I just want to encourage you. Thank you for being a part of that. I know God's going to, to provide. And I'm more excited over the fact that many individuals have come together from all over the country, giving $50 here, $100 here, to put the need together. And it's not just one church writing a big check. Because that's a real encouragement to the brethren overseas. And so I just want to thank you guys and encourage you, don't fall back on the giving of your church as your excuse for giving if you're not living that in your own life. And that doesn't mean that giving always has to be to your local church. God may lay something on your heart to an individual or to a family or someone in need. And when the Holy Spirit pricks you to give, it's best to obey. You know, if you're having financial difficulties or trouble in your life and you're not giving to God, then there's your problem. You know, the Bible's very clear in my own life pays testimony to when I'm not giving, I can't expect a blessing. And, uh, you know, a lot of times what God does in terms of providing for us makes no sense to the world. That's why Paul the Apostle bragged about the Macedonian churches because they were poor, poor Christians. And the poorer they got, the more they gave. And then Paul told the Corinthians who were wealthy, you know, shame on you, these poor Christians. And I've often told churches when they give to missions that increase your missions giving during times of financial struggle. Because God is known to bless and do things that don't make sense from a business perspective or a man-made perspective. And man, I can't explain things like that in our lives or in our ministry where we'll do things that make no financial sense from a world perspective, but God leads and convicts, and then He provides. And I see Him doing that with this uh, situation in Nepal now. So it gives us great joy to be able to provide for the brethren on the ground who are doing the work that we've trained and bottom line is we can provide for them and come alongside, underpin them a lot cheaper, more efficiently than we can sending a foreign missionary couple to live there permanently. It doesn't mean that that shouldn't be done or that's wrong, but it's 
you know, we talk about stewardship, it's amazing what technology allows us to do in terms of the body of Christians in countries that are closed and persecuted. So just pray that all this happens and that the money gets over there. I already encouraged him to put an advance down on the Jeep so we'd secure it, and it looks like that's been done. And, you know, when it comes to driving it, maintaining it, and all that, that's his problem. So thankfully, I don't have to worry about that. But I'm confident those brethren will use uh, the, the funds that the American believers have provided for God's glory. And whatever comes over above it, we're going to pour into the printing fund. That is a perpetual need. Our goal last year was to distribute 100,000 Scripture portions that we translated and printed in Kathmandu. And, uh, when the year was up, it, we found it was 120,000. So praise God for that. And that doesn't mean we're anybody special. It just means that there's a hunger for the Word of God in places around the world today that we don't see here. So if people aren't going to listen here, let's don't focus our energies here. We should be a witness here, but focus our energies elsewhere. There's a hunger. Be willing to give but be also willing to go. Be willing to go. If you can't go, give that others can. If you can't go and maybe you're not in a position to give, pray that God will raise up laborers under the harvest. But if you're like me, and I say this as a missionary, if you can go and you can give and you can pray, you ought to be doing all three. Okay? That's just a little word of introduction. I don't want to get off on a, on a tangent. I really want to finish this message and I don't think I'm going to do it today. So if I don't, you know, it doesn't matter. Okay? Um, I think the elders are going to take next Sunday and we're going to take a break and they're going to share with you some things. So if I don't finish, we'll just pick up when it's time because there's some really good stuff here in this passage. So back to Revelation chapter 2, I believe that um, we got through verse 19 last week. And this message to the church at Thyatira, we're going to start at verse 20 up through 29 today. I hope we'll get through maybe, maybe not. I gave you all an assignment last week to read or study 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 9. Honest, in all honesty, who did that work last week? We did. I kind of figured that would be the response. Nobody did it? Anybody do any of it? I didn't hear that had it. I didn't ask for excuses. I didn't ask for excuses. Isn't it amazing, the power of conviction? No, I'm just joking. I don't ask for excuses. I just want to know who did some of it or all of it. Okay? Guys, if I ask you to do that, it's for your benefit, and I encourage you to, because it will enhance your understanding as we teach the Scriptures today. And then I don't have to get off on a tangent. So what better way to take your devotion time for the week or perhaps the time you have with your family and focus in on something we're actually studying in church? And then when it all comes together, it enhances your understanding, it keeps your children interested. So as we go forward in the future, maybe that's something we should pay a little more attention to, okay? So I'm not saying that to get on your case, I'm just saying, look, this is an opportunity to enhance your understanding of Scripture as a whole and to get your kids involved and keep them interested, okay? So next time if one of the elders or somebody exhorts you to study something during the week, try to make a point. We get into these devotionals and things that we do on a routine, and that's fine. But routine in daily Bible study is dangerous because it breeds legalism, it breeds stagnancy, and it breeds a sense of duty over a desire to be spiritually fed. And I say that because the same thing applies. I'm a martial arts instructor. instructor. The same thing applies in training. If I, don't, if I go by a routine, I get stagnant. It becomes about duty, not about learning. 
it leads to undertraining, which is unproductive, and it can lead to overtraining, which is counterproductive. So learn to change up your, little, your, your, your daily Bible study and don't get too focused on a routine. It's okay if you miss the reading for this date in your one-year Bible study and you want to do something else. Don't make it routine. Little side note there, but not all of you did that. So maybe there are some things this week that you won't understand because I'm going to buzz through. Go back and follow up. Go back and study these scriptures next week. Okay? Well, I, nor I normally don't start till 11.30, so I've gotten this introduction out of the way. It's 11.29, uh, 50 seconds left. 1 Kings 16 through 2 Kings 19. I encourage you to study that this week. 2 Kings 9, I'm sorry. And uh, look and consider this spirit of Jezebel that is so dangerous even to the church today. So use that as an opportunity for Bible study or to study your with your children and keep them interested, okay? So I want to look at the Jezebel in the Old Testament to better understand this indictment that Christ is giving to the church at Thyatira, okay? All right? We read 1 Kings 16, 30-33 last week and it talked about who she was, where she came from, and what she did. Okay, Three aspects of her life are worth remembering. Number one, she was, she was an idolatress. She brought idolatry into Israel. Okay, Number two, she was a persecutor of God's truth, people that held God's truth or God's prophets. She was a persecutor. And number three, she knew how to use God's truth when convenient. This is the spirit of Jezebel. The spirit of Jezebel is idolatry, persecution of true saints, and a knowledge of how to use God's Word when convenient. Not the whole counsel of God, not the Word of God in proper context, but to suit their own desires and ends. Now what does this describe here? The spirit of Jezebel. Where do we see that today? Do we see it rising in American churchianity? Is there idolatry in American churchianity? Who's the primary idol that's worshipped in American churchianity? Men, or maybe a Jesus created in one's mind to suit one's own minds and ple lusts and pleasures looks nothing like the Jesus of the Bible. Is there persecution against true saints rising in American churchianity? Yes. yes. You want to see it? Go out on the street after the model of Jesus and the apostles and preach the gospel. Go to an abortion clinic and preach against the evils of that place. You'll see persecution from the quote-unquote church. What about using God's truth when convenient? How many of you have ever preached the gospel on the streets or gone to hand out tracts or share faith and someone has responded to what you were doing by quoting Matthew 7.1, Judge not that you be not judged. It's exactly what's happening here. This is the spirit of Jezebel. And that spirit is in the American church today. We need to recognize it for what it is. And we need to recognize that God or Jesus Christ Himself judges that spirit. And the judgment's not pretty. Who was this Jezebel? She was the daughter of Ethbaal, who was the king of, Zido of the Zidonians or the Phoenicians. The ancient Phoenician people were a maritime people. Kind of they, their kingdom was in modern day Lebanon, north of Israel. 
It's a, it's a place that sees much conflict and instability today. But the Zidonians, a maritime people, worshipped Baal, or the sun god. And they worshipped Ashtoreth, which was the mother goddess. Uh, kind of like that old school uh, mother-child imagery that you see come up in Babylon. And it's reflected today in the Roman Catholic Church with the Virgin Mary and the baby Christ child. Okay, that queen of heaven that ancient Israel got into worshiping. That came from Baal worship in ancient Phoenicia, which derived from Canaanite idolatry, which all got tied into Babylonian paganism all the way back to the days right after the flood when Nimrod became the first king of Shinar or Babylon. The way that the ancient Israelites worshipped Ashtoreth, this mother goddess, is they would plant trees, groves, groves of trees, and there they would worship this goddess of fertility. Baal being the sun god. Very perverted, very sexual in its uh, um, enactments. Very pagan. Okay? Jezebel actually introduced this form of idolatry, Baal worship, into Israel. Jezebel was a beautiful daughter of a wicked king. King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel married her. Big mistake. It's a big mistake for a Christian man to marry someone that does not share his convictions, thinking that we can win them over when what really happens is those on the wrong side of truth pull God's people to their side. Prior to Jezebel's promotion to the queen of Israel, the Israelites engaged in the sin of Jeroboam. I talked about that last week. He built those two calves. Donna brought up an inter- you know, asked me about something after church, and it was interesting because really that was motivated also in fear. He was fearful that the heart of the people would go back to the southern kingdom and they would kill him. And he thought, well, I've got to do this, although God's prophet had already said, you know, I'm going to bless your kingdom if you fear me. He feared men more than he did God. That was part of the problem. But these golden calves were supposed to be images of Jehovah. So in a sense, their sin was not worshiping another god. Their sin was worshiping God in a way He did not want to be worshipped. Do you understand that the God of the Bible dictates how He wants to be worshipped? That's why that second commandment, which is removed from Roman Catholic Bibles, by the way. Did you know that the Catholic Church numbers the commandments differently than we do? The second commandment, not to make a graven image, is not considered a commandment in the Roman Catholic Ten Commandments. They take the last commandment, thou shalt not covet, and divide it into two. Not coveting uh, people and not coveting property. The second commandment is not listed in Roman Catholic teaching as a commandment. Very interesting, huh? And yet Catholics are Christians? Yet Catholics are our brothers? Interesting. There are ways that Jehovah God does not want to be worshipped and to worship Him that way is not worship at all. It's an affront to Him. It's an abomination. God said don't make a graven image. So it doesn't matter if you make some image and say, well, we're worshipping God. That's not how He wants to be worshipped. God doesn't want to be worshipped in ways outside of what He has instructed us in Revelation. God doesn't want to be prayed to in ways that that are an affront to His name. So the sin of Israel before Jezebel was worshiping God in a way He didn't want to be worshipped. What does John 4 say the way we are to worship God? God is a what? 
And they that worship Him must worship Him in and in truth. That's, that's how God desires to be worshipped. To worship Him in spirit and in truth is to worship Him according to His revelation of Himself as found in the Bible. So that was the sin of Israel before Jezebel. After Jezebel, it went from not worshipping God the way He wanted to be worshipped to actually worshipping another God. That's idolatry. In the churches today, I'm convinced that the Jesus people claim is not Jesus being worshipped just in a way He doesn't want to be worshipped. It's actually another Jesus. Paul warned that a day would come when people would follow another Jesus. And it's one who's been created here to serve our own lust and pleasures. Is our Jesus the Jesus of the Bible? The one who said, repent or you will perish. The one that said, repent and believe the Gospel. The one that said to the woman taken in adultery, go and sin no more. The one who sat down with prostitutes and tax collectors to call men to repentance. Is that the Jesus we worship? Jezebel introduced idolatry, worship of another god altogether. A temple was built in Samaria. Omri, her, uh, her uh, father-in-law, bought this parcel of land in Samaria and made that the new capital of the northern kingdom. And in Samaria, at Jezebel's advice, King Ahab built a temple to Baal. A grove also was built to Ashtoreth, trees planted. There were 450 temple prophets in the days of King Ahab. There were 400 prophets of the groves who ate at Jezebel's table. So it wasn't secret, it was open. If we start to worship God in a way that He doesn't desire to be worshipped, how soon can we fall into idolatry? That's what happened here in the northern kingdom of Israel. So she brought idolatry into the land. Secondly, she was a persecutor. It says that she slew or killed the prophets of the Lord. There was one man who actually was a confidant of King Ahab that hid prophets in a cave to protect them. Put his life at risk. Because she went about persecuting God's prophets. She sought by an oath after the matter on top of Mount Carmel with Elijah and the prophets of Baal. She made an oath to kill Elijah. And said, let it be unto me if I don't fulfill this oath. Well, she didn't fulfill the oath. And she suffered the fate that she put upon God's prophets later on. It caused Elijah who stood fearless against these prophets to run in fear. That's how dangerous she was. God told him, get up off your rear end. Quit feeling sorry for yourself. First thing I want you to do is go anoint Hazael to be king of Syria go anoint Jehu to be the new king of Israel, and then go anoint somebody that's going to replace you. Get up. There's 7,000 people in this land who've not bowed the knee to Baal. Get up. She was a persecutor. She was also one who used God's truth when convenient. An interesting story appears in 1 Kings 21. It was the matter of Naboth's vineyard. Naboth was a man there that had a vineyard there in Samaria, and Ahab wanted it. And he wanted to buy it. And he went to offer to buy this land. And Naboth said, no, it's been in my family for years. I don't want to sell it. And then like the weakling, childish king that he was, he went into his, his, his bedroom and pouted and sulked. Jezebel came in there and said, what's the problem? He said, well, I want this vineyard and Naboth won't sell it to me. And she said, well, aren't you the king? Take it from him. Let me handle it. So she went out and they planned a feast. 
that involved Naboth and then these false witnesses who came in and began to claim that, you know, Naboth's been blaspheming God and all of this and, you know, whatever. And the people stoned him. False witnesses and Ahab took the vineyard. Wicked, wicked, wicked. Jezebel, in this situation, you appealed to God's law to stir up the people. Let's turn to 1 Kings 21, 9 and 10. This is very dangerous and we need to watch for this even today. 1 Kings 21, this woman who was an idolatress who cared nothing for the things of God used the things of God to attain her ends. Verses, chapter 21, verse 9, And she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and get Naboth on high among the people. And set two men, sons of Belial, before him to bear witness against him, saying, Thou didst blaspheme God and the king, and then carry him out and stone him that he may die. Remember the Old Testament law. To blaspheme God was punished by stoning. It was a serious crime and an offense in Israel. And the men of the city, even the elders and the nobles who were the inhabitants in his city, did as Jezebel had sent unto them, and as it was written in the letters which she had sent unto them. And then it goes on to verse 13. In the presence of the people, they claimed Naboth did blaspheme God and the king. And then they took him out and stoned him. So she encouraged the people, these, these wicked false witnesses, to appeal to God's law. She didn't care. Her life was blasphemy against God. Cared nothing for the things of the God of the Bible, but used His truth to attain her own ends, which was the possession of this vineyard. That, my friends, is wicked. Did you know it's possible to use the Bible, to study the Bible and to preach the Bible and to be guilty of heinous sin and crime before God? It's possible to pray to the God of the Bible, to pray to Jesus Christ, and for that prayer to be an abomination to God. Proverbs 28.9. Someone read that. I'm getting a little fired up in here this morning. Proverbs 28.9. Read this passage. There's a whole lot of prayers that go out today in American churchianity and a lot of it's sin. How dare you accuse me of sin if I'm praying to God? Someone read Proverbs 28.9. He that turneth away his ear from hearing the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. If your desire is not to submit to God's law and His Lordship in your life, then even your prayer to Him is an abomination. If your desire is to use God, if you use God's Word only when it's convenient as Jezebel did, then your use of that Word is abomination. More than anyone else or anything else, the Catholic Church has been guilty throughout history of using God's Word to attain its own end while banning the average people from even possessing it. It's funny how they always go to Matthew, I think it's Matthew 16, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And they justify the apostolic succession of the popes and Peter being the first pope. When the, when the passage says, Thou art Peter, Petros, a stone, a pebble, and upon this rock, Petra, a rock, I will build my church. It's not Peter Paul, Jesus is talking about. All you've got to do is read the context. He's talking about Peter's confession. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But they'll use it and twist it for their own means. That is the spirit of Jezebel. Something we need to be very careful about. And I see it today more than anything else with Matthew 7.1. Judge not that you be not judged. I've had people come up to me as I preach on the street and point to the Sermon on the Mount and say, well, Jesus said you're not supposed to preach or pray in public. 
taking Scripture out of context, using it for their own means. Or John chapter 2. Oh, Jesus turned water into wine. So we can get drunk. Using God's Word to justify your own sin. Peter says it this way. He talks about false teachers who rest. This is a great old English word. It's uh, great. Who rest. To rest is to not just take, but it's like if, if, if I wanted something from you, if I wanted this Bible from Nate, hold on to it. Try to prevent me from taking it. To take it is just to take it. To rest it is Nate's not going to let go of it. So I do what I've got to do and I'm going to take it. That's resting. That's what people do with the Scriptures. They rest it to their own destruction. The spirit of Jezebel rests the Scriptures to its own destruction. We must be, beware, be aware of this and wary of it. That's why Scripture must be studied in its context properly. Understand who is being spoken to. Interpret Scripture with Scripture. Rightly divide the word of truth. Take obscure passages that are hard to understand and filter them through the clear passages of Scripture written to the church, not vice versa. That will protect us from being guilty of these crimes. Amazing how Jezebel would say, Oh, this man has blasphemed God. Her whole life was blasphemy against God and she was proud of it. And people fell for it. Look at the Pope. This new Pope who stands up and talks about world peace and life. The whole testimony of Roman Catholicism has never been pro-life. I'm going to share with you something that happened in the Dark Ages during one Pope's rule. They called it the pornocracy. And this church who is so pro-life on the surface was all about abortions during that day when it hid the sins of the priest and the Pope himself and the women that were coming in and out of that, uh, that palace there in Rome. Very interesting. None of that stuff's ever been acknowledged or repented of. Spirit of Jezebel. As a result of what happened with Naboth's vineyard, there was a prophecy of doom uttered from God by Elijah to both Ahab and Jezebel prophesying their doom, the doom of Ahab's dynasty and Jezebel's death. And exactly what God said would happen took place. In 1 Kings 21-25, Jezebel is described as someone, or Ahab the king, excuse me, is described as someone whom Jezebel, his wife, stirred up. Oh, there was wickedness in his heart. It was always there. She stirred it up. He's no less guilty. She just brought up what was already there. 2 Kings 9, we read about how she died in fulfillment of this prophecy given by Elijah. It talks about how when Jehu, this new man who had been anointed king, was told to destroy Ahab and his dynasty and to remove idolatry from Israel, he was coming toward Jezreel, driving furiously with his chariot. She knew what was coming. She knew it was time that she could not escape. So what did she do? It says she painted her face and fixed up her hair looked out the window and made a smart aleck remark to Jehu and he said, is there anybody here on my side? And two eunuchs peeked out the window. He said, throw her down. So these servants of her tossed her out the window and she splattered all over the pavement. Jehu let her body lay there for a while as a testimony of God's judgment and then told his people, we need to bury her. She is the daughter of a king. And when they went to bury her, all they found was the palms of her hands and I think part of her face part of her feet. 
So you can be beautiful and powerful and seductive in your life, but in death, all of that is vanity. But that's where that term, a painted Jezebel, comes from. This idea of painting our face up, um, uh, caking on makeup. It means a loose woman. No, I think that goes to some interpretations there in the New Testament, in uh, Paul's epistle, 1 Timothy, and in 1 Corinthians, but... Um, um, First Peter as well. Uh, that's actually another topic. Um, but the painted, the painted Jezebel comes from... It, it's a British uh, uh, slang that talks about caking on makeup in such a way to make you look beautiful than when you're really not. And so they call that a painted Jezebel. She was fixing herself up to look beautiful despite how wicked she was or how wicked she, she had been. Uh, in her role as queen of Israel. And so it kind of makes me, me think about all those TV uh, preacher wives and TV preachers who cake on the makeup. It's not only disgusting in the way it looks, but it kind of is interesting how that ties to Jezebel in the Old Testament and really betrays what these people are at heart. Caking on the makeup, a loose woman. I don't think a beautiful woman needs to cake on makeup to be beautiful. I like natural beauty. Doesn't mean a little little highlight here and there is bad. <laughs> but don't put don't talk about putting on makeup as putting on your face. Okay? So this spirit of Jezebel was one of idolatry, persecution, and using God's truth when convenient. We need to be aware of these things. God forbid that we would fall into this idolatry. The question you brought up about makeup, that, that, that's another topic. I don't really want to get into that right now. I could get off on a tangent. Um, Paul says some things about women, uh, women adorning themselves modestly. There's no question that Christian women ought to be modest. Okay? But to translate modesty into specific types of clothing or specific types of makeup can be dangerous and quickly become legalistic. If Peter is to be taken literally in his passage, he says, let not their adorning be the putting on of apparel, but a meek and quiet spirit. If that is exact literal, then that means don't put on clothes. So that's, we know that's not what he's saying. So we have to be careful we don't take God's truth and try to define it culturally. But neither should... I mean, whether in, in, in God's truth goes beyond culture and everything culturally ought to be filtered through it. And that can lead to compromise. If we fail to do that, that can lead to compromise and it can lead to legalism. So those are just some things to be careful with. And other people have different preferences. So there is liberty in the body of Christ and if someone has a preference or a conviction, we need to be careful not to judge our brethren as well. Just make sure that what you're doing, if it doesn't come in conflict with God's Word and the way you lead your life, make sure it, neither does it come in conflict with your conscience or the convictions that the Holy Spirit might be laying on your life. So that's kind of, uh, I don't want to get off on a tangent, but just let that be said. I want to look real quick before I move on. Not only Jezebel's life and her spirit, not only were these a problem for Israel, but it's, it, it's worth us looking at her posterity. Because we're going to see later in this passage that God pronounces judgment on three entities. Number one, Jezebel herself. Thyatira, God's going to judge Jezebel herself. Number two, He's going to judge those that commit adultery with her. 
And number three, He's going to judge her children. So against this backdrop, I want to look real quickly at her posterity because her sin and her spirit didn't just affect Israel during her lifetime. It also affected them after her lifetime and it affected the southern kingdom of Judah, David's line, directly. And we see this many years later in Matthew chapter 1 in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So we have the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, which was divided during the days of Solomon's son Rehoboam as a result of Solomon's turning from God, judgment. King Ahab married Jezebel, the idolatrous, and they had two sons who would become kings of Israel after Ahab's death, Ahaziah and Jehoram. They were brothers. Okay. They would also have a daughter. Okay, you had Jehoshaphat over here in Judah. He was a godly king. Jehoshaphat was a godly king just like his father Asa. There were godly kings in Judah. They had, he had a son named Jehoram. And Ahab and Jezebel had a daughter named Athaliah. And in order to form an alliance, these two got married. Okay? So this, the daughter of, of Jezebel married the king of Judah. And Jehoshaphat was rebuked for his ungodly alliance with King Ahab. So we ought to be real careful when aligning ourselves with ungodly influences because it causes a problem. Okay? These two in Judah had a son, Ahaziah. This is all found in the Kings and Chronicles. He is mentioned not only as a grandson of King Ahab, but he's also called the son-in-law of King Ahab. So that means he must have married another, perhaps a daughter of one of these men. We're not told. But the only way a man can be a grandson and a son-in-law is if he married someone in that family. Okay? He was a grandson by birth, but he was a son-in-law by marriage. So here we have another alliance with that ungodly house of Ahab in the southern kingdom of Judah. We don't know her name. We just know it took place. And then Ahaziah gave birth to Joash, who gave birth to Amaziah. These were all the kings of Judah, who gave birth to Uzziah. Uzziah, the year that Uzziah died, king, uh, the prophet Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, Isaiah 6. That was in the day that Uzziah died. And then we go on all the way to the days of Josiah, the last king, then the last kings of Judah, and then all the way through the, the captivity and the exile, the return, the intertestamental period, all the way to Jesus Christ. Directly in the genealogical line of David, Matthew chapter 1. Okay? Now, these kings here, Ahaziah, the son of... of uh, now, not, I'm sorry, that, I can't even read my own chicken scratch up here. Athaliah is the queen. I'm sorry. This king of Judah was visiting this king of Israel in the days of Jehu, and they were meeting together and fellowshipping together in Jezreel, and both of these were killed by Jehu, who would become the next king of Israel. And God promised Jehu, if you will serve me faithfully, I will give you a kingdom. 
Jehu removed idolatry from the land, destroyed the idol worshippers, but he never got rid of those golden calves. And that sin of Jeroboam came right back and never was removed. This king Ahaziah died, and so his, he had no son. So his brother Jehoram became the king of Israel. And he was buddies with Ahaziah, Ahaziah the, daughter, the granddaughter of Jezebel. So they were all kind of in this mix together. And they were both killed by Jehu at the same time that Jezebel was killed there. You can read about that in 2 Kings chapter 9. But what is interesting about this posterity, particularly these three kings here in the line of Judah, in the line of Christ, when you go to Matthew chapter 1, these kings are left out of the genealogy. And many people say, well, Matthew didn't know his history. Because if you go to the Old Testament, there were three kings that were in this line. They're written about extensively, yet Matthew did not put them in Matthew chapter 1. Some people will say, well, that's a contradiction in the Word of God. It's a historical error. It's only a historical error if we fail to see the purpose of that genealogy in Matthew 1. The purpose of that genealogy was to demonstrate that Jesus Christ was the rightful heir by blood to the throne of King David. But when idolatry comes into the land, its effects can be long-term. And it can actually affect future generations that may or may not have been directly involved in that idolatry. Jezebel's wicked spirit actually affected the bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Not that God's purposes weren't fulfilled. Why would these kings not be mentioned? Matthew chapter 1, the list in Matthew chapter 1 is to list the sons of David. Jesus Christ was a rightful heir. Even going back to Abraham, the promise there, going back to Adam, Jesus Christ was the second Adam, the rightful heir. But if you go and look at the genealogy and you consider that this man was a product of a wicked alliance with King Ahab, he was 50% the house, he was 50% the blood of Ahab, only 50% the blood of David, and then you see this guy as a son-in-law... So he also married someone from her house. It wasn't until the days of Uzziah that the bloodline became more the son of David than the son of Ahab. So these three kings here in their blood were more the son of Ahab than they were the son of David. And therefore they have no place in that genealogy. Why? Because of wicked alliances and intermarriage with the spirit of idolatry. Friends, when you marry someone that doesn't share your fear of God and your conviction, you affect your own bloodline and the spirit that will guide and rule in your home. Be careful. But these men are not listed because Matthew didn't know his history. They're not listed because they were more the children of Ahab than they were the sons of David. Now, Matthew talks about three sets of 14 generations unto the days of Christ. Abraham to David, David to the captivity, and the captivity to Christ. Now, leaving out these kings doesn't affect that because there were three kings in Judah that ruled for very short periods of time, including one of these, just a few years. So it doesn't affect the generations. Generations, what, like 40 years? So that, that isn't affected. There is no mistake there. What it's doing is showing us how idolatry and wicked alliance with idolatry, even if the motives are good, can affect even something as serious 
as the genealogical bloodline of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, God overcame that. God's Word, His purposes are always fulfilled. But that's why those kings aren't listed in Matthew 1. It's not a contradiction. It's deep meaning. Usually those that claim the Bible has contradictions or error can't show you one. And they can only show it to you on the surface and they're not interested in listening to the actual explanation as to why that's written the way it is. But it was four generations later that the king of Judah was able to weed out that bloodline of Ahab. It took four generations to fix that. Do we want it to take four generations to fix the sins that we've introduced into our bloodlines and our, our family tree? God forbid. Tendencies that we see in our own lives rise up in our children and we do nothing about it. We don't even try to correct it or try to exhort them into another path. And it just comes back again. I'm thankful for those in my family tree who broke the chains of generational sin. I think my grandfather who died recently was one of those. He wasn't perfect made lots of mistakes, but he took steps to break chains in such a way that the family tree has turned back toward the things of God. So praise God for those who will take a stand and not just align with everything that looks good and feels good or do it for political reasons. Jehoshaphat did this for political reasons. How many pastors today say things for political reasons? I went to a Christian university where the chancellor who is dead now did that all the time and justified it. Dangerous. Dangerous. Let's go back to the text. So maybe you have a better understanding now of who this Jezebel was. She, in the church at Thyatira, I said last week that it possibly could be a reference to the pastor's wife. You had a strong-willed woman running the church through her weak husband. That's very possible. I won't dogmatically hold to that. But what we're talking about here more than anything is a spirit, much like the spirit of that Jezebel in the Old Testament. It says here in verse 20 that she called herself a prophetess and she taught and seduced my servants to commit fornication and to eat things sacrificed to idols. If you go back to the letter at Pergamos, this is the exact same sin that was tolerated at Pergamos, now it's being taught. Now it's being taught. And so, what has actually happened? Let's shift gears and come back into the first century to Thyatira itself. And I told you how in this city, the trade guilds or the trade unions were an important part of business. And if you weren't part of a trade guild or a trade union, it was very hard to do business. There were... You know, there was the manufacture of dyes and various cloths and textiles in this city. Very important profitable businesses in that day. These trade guilds or these unions, much like we have today in various industries in the United States, they would meet frequently for a common meal which was often a religious ceremony. See, back then religion was tied to everything. Idolatry was tied to everything. There's still places like that. You want to know what the reason behind so many of the problems we see in Nepal is? Idolatry. Idolatry is the reason why you look at the electrical wires and they look like the biggest mess you've ever seen. Idolatry is the reason why the old woman won't even look both ways when she crosses the street. Now I could explain that in a little more detail, but I'll get off on a tangent. Don't want to do that. But these trade guilds met frequently for a common meal and observed religious ceremonies. These often took place in heathen temples. And they began with an offering to the gods followed by meat offered to idols. 
And so you had obviously people in this church who were involved in business who had to make a decision. Am I going to continue to try and do my business in partnership with these trade guilds as a follower of Jesus Christ or am I going to have to separate from that and possibly my business will suffer? Something a lot of people in America face today and often we justify why we do things contrary to God's will for the sake of our business or for the sake of providing for our family or for the sake of making sure my children have a college education. What was Jezebel teaching? Well, it's obvious to me she was teaching that it was okay to participate in this debauchery, debauchery in order to make a living or to build relationships with the lost. She was encouraging the people at Thyatira, keep on being a part of these trade unions. You've got to make a living. You've got to have a career. I love it when I come back from the mission field. My family and I, we've been serving the Lord. We've seen some persecution, albeit nothing like the saints of old. But was well, he going to get a job now? What's he going to do for a living? By quote-unquote Christians. This is my life. A career is a 20th century invention, my friends. And if you think the purpose in life is to punch a time card your entire life so that you can accumulate something that you die and leave behind and then your children take it and do whatever they want to do with it, whether you like it or not, and you think that's the purpose of life, then I weep for you. That's not to say that God doesn't put us in jobs and we don't have to do certain things for a reason, but everything's for the glory of God, not for building up a nest egg. You see, Solomon warned the richest, one of the richest, wealthiest, and most wise kings in all of history warned about that. You can heap up all of these riches, but when you die, they're left to other people who are going to do with it whatever they desire, whether you like it or approve of it or not. How often does that happen with godly folks who leave an inheritance to their children? And we are, it's, it's a blessing for a father to leave an inheritance to his children's children. It says that in the Scriptures, Proverbs. But how often do their grandchildren, great-grandchildren, take that which was put up by someone godly and faithful and squander it on worldly things? It's sad. But this justifying ungodly actions in view of an American career is dangerous because a career has no place in the life of a Christian. Everything is a means to an end. Your means to glorifying God may be through a career. But your career is not for you, it's for Him. And you better be willing to build it, as He says, build it, and you better be willing to walk away from it, as He says, walk away from it. That's how we as Christians ought to live. And He'll provide for us in ways that the world cannot explain. But this Jezebel was teaching, it's okay to participate in these things. You've got to build relationships. You've got to make a living. Business is business. God understands. How often have we kind of heard that mentality expressed in the church? Business is business. God understands. We see that in the church today with homosexuality. Divorce. Immodesty, ecumenism. Well, you know, we gotta, we gotta, we got to show people Jesus. we got to win the loss. So we've got to be all things to all people. That's another verse that's taken woefully out of context. Paul says in the next verse that he does everything he does for the sake of the gospel. See, people say, I'll be all things to all people for the sake of men. But what Paul was saying was, I do what I do for the sake of the gospel. And so if you're doing it for the sake of the gospel, there's things you can't be outside those parameters. That's another thing woefully taken out of context. And friends, God does hold the church responsible. 
God does hold those responsible who justify ungodly actions and the purity of life that we are called to to further their own ministry. He holds the church responsible. Using the world to achieve one's end in ministry. Revelation chapter 2.15, the doctrine of Balaam. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. That was being taught here at Thyatira. Using the world to achieve one's end in ministry. And that's what churches do all the time when they try to fill their pews. Using the world, attracting people with music and contemporary services and festivals. I mean, there was a church locally several years ago who had a festival on Halloween. And they, they didn't call it Halloween, they called it Niwola. And I had to look at that for a minute and think, what in the world is that? And then I realized it was Halloween spelled backwards. So in other words, let's use a day that glorifies evil to try to attract people to our church. That's wicked. And the believers in Nepal wouldn't even dream of using a Hindu holiday. And trust me, the Hindus have more holidays than any group of people around the world. Every other day is a holiday. And it's, it revolves around religious stories and fantasies and fairy tales. It often reads like Disneyland when you read some of this stuff. But they have holidays all the time. And Christians who've been born again in Nepal, particularly baptized believers, wouldn't dream of using a Hindu holiday to attract people to their church. Wouldn't dream of it. Wouldn't understand how we could call ourselves born again and do those things. You know what the Christians do on their, on the quote-unquote church holidays each year? Here in America on Easter, Christmas, everybody comes to church. Churches are full. And we do our little service and everybody feels good about themselves. And Churches in Nepal use Christmas and Easter as a means to show the Hindus that, hey, we have our holidays too. We celebrate our holidays a little bit different than you do, and so the Christians in, in the Kathmandu are known for taking to the streets on Easter and Christmas with banners containing Scripture passages, with gospel tracts, and local churches go out in the street and spend the day of Easter, the day of Christmas, sharing the gospel, handing out tracts, and being a witness for Jesus Christ. Now the problem with that is, I wish the Nepali Christians could understand the need to do that every day, and just not on a couple of holidays. But praise God, they see the holiday as a means not to mix with the world, but as to declare Christ. When today, Christmas and Easter, even as we celebrate it in the church, a lot of times has become idolatrous. Rooted in pagan practices, it has nothing to do with glorifying God. God holds the church responsible for these things. If what you do in your job or what you're being asked to do brings you into conflict with God's Word, then you have one option. That is to separate yourself from it. The last worry on your mind ought to be, what am I going to do for my family? And I speak as one who's been there and struggles with that. God will provide. We cannot justify spiritual fornication and idolatry like was being done at Thyatira. This was being taught, and the people in large part bought into it. And what happened is it led to a breaking down of all moral barriers of separation between the church and the world. Friends, we're not supposed to be like the world. We're to be separate from the world. A light. Now, albeit people take that too far, and very carefully we could fall into legalism if our focus comes off of Jesus Christ, the head of the church, and comes upon ourselves. But we're to be separate from the world, and that is a... Sin to preach that in the churches today. They've become one with the world, just like the business people at Thyatira had done with the trade guilds. 
Lydia was from Thyatira. She was a seller of purple, first convert in Europe under Paul's second missionary journey. What was she doing in Philippi? Maybe, perhaps I'd like to think that she realized she couldn't do business in the trade guilds and decided to move somewhere else and start up that business somewhere else where she wouldn't have to compromise. I don't know that. That's just kind of a glamorous thing to think about. And as a result of that, maybe God blessed, uh, blessed her. She wasn't a Christian at the time or... Or maybe God was saving her from being a part. I don't know. But it's interesting the tie there. She was doing business in another city. Maybe there was something in her heart that was um, sensitive toward God and, and against the idolatry of Thyatira. So she moved away. And as a result of that sensitivity, God ensured that the Gospel came to her. Just like Cornelius in Acts 10, he was sensitive to the things of God. God made sure the Gospel got there. So it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Verse 21 and I gave her, that is Jezebel, space to repent for her fornication, and she repented not. An opportunity was given to the church of Thyatira to repent from the spirit of Jezebel. Somebody turn to Amos chapter 3, verse 7. God is a God of mercy, my friends. He's not like Allah of the Quran, distant and unknowable. He's not like the gods and goddesses of Hinduism who do what they do for themselves and to satisfy their own lust and pleasures. He's a merciful God. That's why He sent Christ to die for the sins of the world. He's merciful even in judgment. Amos 3.7, someone read that. The context of that passage there is God's judgment. It says God will do nothing unless He first reveals it through His servants, the prophets. What was the role of a prophet in Israel? What was his purpose in going out and preaching God's Word to the people? It was to what then? To warn of God's judgment. That ought to be an aspect of our evangelism. Warning of God's judgment. You see, God is merciful because He never passes judgment without first giving warning. Allah of the Quran doesn't do that. Allah of the Quran actually tempts people to sin, then he, then he can blow them away. There's a story in the Quran, or it's either it might be in the Hadith, I'd, I'd have to remember, those are the oral traditions of Muhammad, that says there was a village by the seaside and that God wanted to tempt the people to break the Sabbath. And it was a fishing village, and so He would send the fish on the Sabbath day, during the rest of the week they weren't biting. But he would send the fish on the Sabbath day to actually jump out of the water and speak to the people and say, hey, we're here. Catch us. We're here. And so the people fished on the Sabbath and then, then Allah wiped the city out. I mean, it's like a Disneyland fairy tale. I mean, you put the Bible beside... If you put the Quran beside the Bible, it's like putting a mount, uh, an anthill beside Mount Everest in terms of spiritual truth. It's no comparison... But the God of the Quran tempts people to sin and then destroys them and laughs about it. That's not the God of the Bible. He never tempts man with evil. Let no man when he is tempted of evil, James said, say he is tempted of God. But God doesn't judge without warning. God gave Thyatira an opportunity to repent. The warning had been given. That's His mercy. God never dispenses judgment without warning. I preach that all the time on the streets as an example of what makes the God of the Bible different from the gods of man-made religion. But sadly, the church, at, at Thyatira, this warning was rejected. 
And as a result of warning being rejected and of repentance being shunned, there was no hope any longer for this church as a whole. Judgment would come. That was a dangerous place to be. Following this passage in Amos where God says He never does anything in terms of judgment unless He warns first through His prophets, God, God reminds Israel of all the warnings He sent them. And it says numerous times in chapter 4, Yet you have not returned unto Me, saith the Lord. Yet you have not returned unto Me, saith the Lord. Yet you have not returned unto Me, saith the Lord. God reminds them of all His merciful warnings. And then tells them, and then kind of almost mocks Israel and says, in chapter 4, uh, Four and five. Actually, it's chapter three, yet you have not returned unto me, saith the Lord. Chapter three, sorry. And at Amos four, four and five, he says, Go ahead. Go to go to Bethel, where the golden calf is, go to Gilgal, sin. Just keep doing it because that's what you want to do. That's what you want to do. It's a dangerous place to be when the church has rejected God's warnings, failed to repent, and then God actually invites them to sin and to prepare to meet him. God told Israel, that likes you. Go ahead and do it. But be, be, be assured that one day we will meet face to face. Prepare to meet thy God. Who is this God? He that forms the mountains. That createth the wind. That declares unto man what is his thought. That maketh the morning darkness. That treads upon the high places of the earth. The Lord, the God of hosts, is His name. A merciful God warns that people might escape judgment. But when that judgment is spurned, when the cross of Christ is rejected and trampled upon, as the author of Hebrews says, how can we escape? Because we've neglected so great salvation. It's a dangerous place to be when God actually invites you to sin after multiple calls to repentance and then informs you that there's a meeting coming with Him. And in a sense, what God did with Israel and Amos is what He's doing here with the church at Thyatira. It says in verse uh, 22, Behold, I will cast her into a bed. This phrase here, I will cast, in the Greek is in, is in the present tense, speaking of a future event. And sometimes in the Greek, the present tense is used to speak of the future, to convey the idea that it's, even though it hasn't taken place, we call this the futuristic present, it's so sure that it's as if it's taking place now. We can speak of Jesus' return to earth to set up a kingdom as being so sure that it's here even now. That's what Jesus did throughout the New Testament. So God's judgment is sure. So sure that it can be spoken of not only in the presence, but also in the past to convey that it's as good as already done. Salvation is the same way. Paul spoke of salvation in the past tense. Our glorification in the past tense as if it's good as done for those who have trusted Christ. Praise the Lord. There are three parties threatened with judgment here in verses 22 and 23. Behold, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. And I will kill her children with death. And all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give you unto every one of you according to your works. Three parties threatened with judgment. Jezebel herself. There's an air of sarcasm here. Jezebel likes beds, adulterous beds. God said, I'm going to give you a bed. I will cast her into a bed. The adulteress likes a bed, God will give her a bed. An air of sarcasm there. False teachers are spoken of 
in this sense in the New Testament. They will be destroyed and it won't be pretty. Jude chapter, verse 13 talks about false teachers who follow in the error of Balaam. To whom these, for these is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. This spirit of Jezebel as reflected in Roman Catholicism or embodied in Roman Catholicism is spoken again in Revelation 17.16. We're going to get there again. Look what God says to that ecumenical monster as embodied in Catholicism and the false religious systems of the world that Antichrist uses to come to power. He'll use the ecumenical Catholic spirit of the churches to come to power. But in chapter 17, verse 16... His minions and the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked. That whore on the beast is the false religious system. The beast is Antichrist. He uses her to come to power and then he turns on her. He turns on her. They'll hate the whore and shall make her desolate and naked and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. So this false religious system is a tool to usher in the man of sin. But once he's gotten what he wants... He turns on even that false religious system and in that is the judgment God meets out for her. Those churches that turn away from the God of the Bible and bring in idolatry, they will be punished in much the, way, in much the same way they have punished or persecuted others. The Roman church, or that spirit we see in Roman Catholicism, it's what Antichrist in the future prior to Christ's kingdom coming to earth, will use to secure a kingdom. And then he turns on her and proclaims himself as God. And everyone falls for it. We'll talk about that later. Also, those who commit adultery with Jezebel, or that spirit, will be punished with her. It says here, I will cast her into a bed, and them that commit adultery with her into great tribulation, except they repent of their deeds. Frequently throughout the book of Revelation, the term fornication is used in referring to spiritual sins of the churches here or of the peoples of this earth later. Here, however, it's adultery that is referenced. It's a unique description in the book of Revelation. Here it says adultery, not fornication. Why? Well, at Thyatira, not only had the moral law of God been violated... The church had sinned against the covenant relationship it had with Jesus Christ, which caused us to purity. Not only were they doing immorality, but they were taking pleasure in this while claiming to be serving God or doing ministry. That is spiritual adultery. Spiritual fornication is to claim to be a Christian and be living in sin, that's spiritual fornication. Spiritual adultery is to claim to be a Christian, to be living in sin while claiming that you are serving God and thinking God is okay with it. Spiritual fornication in the churches when we began to tolerate the sin of homosexuality. It becomes spiritual adultery when the churches say it's okay. Be who you are. I'm a homosexual and I'm a Christian and God's okay with it and I'm serving God. Jesus told His disciples that people would come in His name and actually claim to be doing service by killing them. That's spiritual adultery. Do you understand the difference? 
Spiritual fornication is the sin against God while claiming Him, taking His name in vain with your lifestyle. Spiritual adultery is to claim to have a covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, to live in a way that's opposite of that, then to boast in it and to say and preach that this is ministry and God is okay with it. When churches say, like Liberty University did recently when it came out about this homosexual student who was affirmed more or less in his lifestyle there at the school and how he wrote this glowing article of the school after he left. And, you know, one of the responses from Jerry Falwell Jr. was, you know, we just don't judge. That's spiritual adultery. That's spiritual adultery. That's not love for that individual, it's actually hatred. But those who commit adultery with Jezebel will also meet her fate. Now, however, there's opportunity for repentance. There's no opportunity for repentance anymore for the spirit of Jezebel. But for those who commit adultery with her, it says here, except they repent. What's the remedy for spiritual adultery? As long as you have breath in your body, as long as a church exists, the remedy is repentance. Let's repent and turn from it. And we can escape great tribulation. Doing immorality while claiming to be a follower of Christ, spiritual fornication. Doing immorality but taking pleasure in this while claiming to serve God and doing ministry without conviction, that's spiritual adultery. If we're living in sin and have no conviction, man, that's dangerous. That's not just fornication, that's adultery against God if we're claiming His name. And it's one thing Paul uses to describe the wicked. Romans chapter 1, he's talking about the ungodliness and wickedness of man. Talks about them in verse 32 as, "...who knowing the judgment of God that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them." Paul is talking about the lost man's attitude towards sin here. Not only does he know it's wrong according to his conscience, but he takes pleasure in violating his conscience. That's a lost man's attitude of sin. If you go over to Romans 7, Paul describes his struggles in the flesh. Some people say that this is Paul prior to conversion and that Christians shouldn't have this type of struggle and if you do, you're not saved. And Some of that's reactionary. That's reactionary theology and interpretation in the face of so many people claiming the name of Christ today in America but not living for Him. We've got to be careful of reactionary theology. But in Romans chapter 7, as Paul is describing his struggles in the flesh, he says in verse 22, I delight in the law of God after the inward man. That's not a lost man's attitude towards sin. A lost man or a false convert's one that does sin and has pleasure in it, even claiming that it's ministry. A child of God delights after the law of God and needs to walk in the Spirit that he might overcome the lust and desires of the flesh. Romans 7 can't be that of a lost man. But there's plenty of false converts who claim to be what Paul is there in Romans 7 when really they're what Paul describes in Romans 1. That's the problem. That's the problem. But there's good news for those who commit adultery against God. False converts. There's good news. Repentance is possible. But otherwise, there will be great tribulation. Repentance is possible, but apart from repentance, there will be great tribulation. Now, I believe this reference here to great tribulation is an actual reference to that seven-year period 
what the Old Testament calls the time of Jacob's trouble. Daniel's 70th week. The tribulation period as will be laid out for us when we get past Revelation chapter 3 into the things which shall be hereafter. This is a reference to that period of tribulation that serves two purposes in God's plan and purpose for the ages. Number one, it serves to judge this world and for God to pour out His wrath on this planet prior to the inauguration of Messiah's literal physical kingdom. Number two, it serves the purpose of bringing Israel, God's covenant people, to their utter end and waking them up out of their slumber so that they will see Jesus is the Messiah. So I believe this is a reference to that period. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. I'm not going to finish this passage today. So we have Jezebel herself as an object of judgment. We have those who commit adultery with her as an object of judgment. And we have, verse 23, her children as an object of judgment. The spiritual offspring of spiritual adultery are also the recipients of God's judgment. There's two images that come to mind when I read this passage. Verse 23, And I will kill her children with death. Two images come to mind. One of those is of the spiritual children of Roman Catholicism. There's much that calls itself Protestant, even Baptist today, which carries in the way its church is conducted, in the way its quote-unquote gospel is preached, in the way in which the Christian life is lived, there's much that calls itself Baptist and Protestant which carries traits of a Catholic mother. Even some of the Protestant reformers that God used to get the Word of God throughout the land in the Reformation, whom God used to stand up to the Pope and to break away, carried with them traits of their Catholic mother in which after time would render their churches dead and persecutors of the very types of people that they once were under Rome. I can't help of thinking about that. Roman Catholicism, spiritual children, Protestant, Baptist, other churches that carry marks of their mother and are returning to her even today. Dangerous. Another image comes to mind. I think about the quote-unquote Christian youth in America. Spiritual children of the spiritual adultery that was tolerated in our churches, that is now being taught, and is now producing offspring. In 2002, there was a survey done. 91% of church kids said that there is no absolute truth. 91%. That's what comes to my mind when I think of spiritual children of spiritual adultery. How is that? How is that? I think of all these Bible versions that have been put out. We've got to make the Scriptures easy to understand. We've got to come up with a new, more up-to-date translation. And then people will better understand God's Word and society will turn back to God. We've got a plethora of versions on the shelves. Some of them say the exact opposite of what God's Word said. I mean, the latest fad today is the ESV, the English Standard Version. I found 11 places in the New Testament. Not in the New Testament. Old and New Testament. I found at least 11 places. Just a casual perusal where it verses read the exact opposite of what God has preserved here in the King James. Well, something's wrong. They can't both be right. 
But my point here is not to argue Bible versions. My point here is to say, look, we got the Bible translated in all these different ways in all these Bible versions, and what is the product of it? The product is 91% of Christian youth in this country say there's no absolute truth. Friends, when we took away, and I'm going to just say this and move on, and there's a lot that goes behind this. When we took away this old King James Bible from our kids and from the uneducated, you know what? We, we didn't rob them of just a preserved testimony of God's Word. We robbed them of a university of learning. How is it that people like Abraham Lincoln could rise up from a backwoods cabin in poverty and become the President of the United States, a learned man who never saw university in the way we see it today? How? He talked about how he learned from this Bible. This English Bible full of amazing words, full of amazing cadence and rhythm that God blessed and preserved, teaches us how to read in context, defines itself, all of these amazing things. You know, when we dumb something down, we rob kids of learning. That's a side note. Now 91% of church kids as of 2002 in this country say there's no absolute truth. That's the product of spiritual adultery. It produces children. And those children come under God's judgment. Go study something in history, in American history. The Puritans, they came to Massachusetts and set up the Massachusetts Bay Colony. Go study what was called the Halfway Covenant. And you'll see another example of what I'm talking about. Another example. Dangerous. I'm going to finish here with verse 23. I will kill her children with death. There's three objects of judgment here. There is opportunity to repent. If there's an opportunity to repent with those who commit adultery, then that repentance will prevent the conceiving of adulterous children. That's how important it is to repent. But why is Jesus going to mete out this judgment on these three parties? It says in verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am He which searcheth the reins and hearts, and I will give unto every one of you according to your works. Well, Jesus, first of all, does kill. Jesus does kill. Righteous killing, not murder. Judgment. That's the Jesus of the Bible. It says, I will kill her children with death. And Christ's judgment, my friends, is a wake-up call to all churches. It's a warning. And it's these warnings that God uses to preserve His faithful remnant. Why are there warnings in Scripture that ought to make us pause? and examine ourselves. Not because salvation is insecure. Not because we can be saved and then lose it. But it's God's means of keeping us pure. Just like if I go mountaineering as Dylan and I did in South America. The weather report was a warning to us that ultimately kept us from doing something very stupid. It didn't mean if we tried to climb the mountain, we were necessarily going to die. But it was a warning that God used to protect us. God uses these warnings in Scripture not to mean that salvation is unsecure, but to keep us pure. These judgments against wicked, idolatrous churchianity are a warning for all the churches to keep the remnant pure. And why do I know that? Because in the verses that follows, immediately after God says, 
Let all the, you know, all the churches are going to know. Then he addresses no longer Thyatira, but the remnant at Thyatira. The warnings are for the remnant. When the Scriptures say, examine yourself to make sure you're in the faith, that isn't to communicate that your salvation can be lost or that you have to keep it. It's a warning to say, examine yourself. Make sure that what you claim is really what you claim. And if it is, walk in joy knowing that when Christ saves you, He glorifies you. It's as good as already done. It can't be lost. Jesus says, uh, I am He. The churches are going to know that I am He which searches the reins and hearts. That word reins here is a reference to kidneys. That used to be considered the seat of our emotions and our feelings was in the kidneys. And if your kidneys do get messed up and they aren't properly filtered and things like that, that can lead to a whole mess of bad feelings, psychological problems. I mean, it can. So, I mean, there is a connection there. Just like a, a woman who goes through PMS, I mean, the hormones are tied to emotional issues. So there was a reason why the ancients connected it. But it was believed to be the seat of emotions and feelings. Christ says He tries the reins and hearts. What does that mean? He knows not only our actions, but He knows our true motives. And He knows whether or not our emotions, our emotional worship is real or if it's just a facade. He knows these things. And He judges according to our works. Now that's where I'm going to stop today. I'm sorry I've gone over. I really wanted to finish this, but there's so much good that needs to be taught in this past. So much of importance. And when we get to the remnant, what Christ says to the remnant cannot be glossed over. What actually took place during this period of church history, the Thyatira church period, it cannot be glossed over. So we'll get back to it. This is the first church that's going to take four Sundays to repeat. But it is the longest of the messages to the seven churches. So we'll get to the end when we get to the end. But remember, Christ is He that tries the reins and hearts and He will give to every man according to His works. We're going to end with that next week. Your elders will be sharing some things with you. Sometimes it's necessary to take a break, not only for your sake, but for mine as well. And I just encourage you to go back and study those passages I talked about last week and don't be afraid to read ahead in Revelation and see what is to come. Maybe that will give you a venue to ask a very relevant question or to see something that I might miss. Okay? ask you guys to pray for me. Um, I did buy plane tickets to Peru on Friday. I'm leaving on June the 19th at 1 in the morning from Miami, Florida. And I'll return on June, or July the 22nd early in the morning. I'm going to be rendezvousing with Dylan, Dylan and, and Rick, Ricky and Lima. And we're going to be taking... The first two weeks with Dylan, we're going to target uh, some Israeli hotspots in Peru with the gospel. Their focus is on taking Christ to the Israeli travelers. I won't go into all the details. And then the last two weeks, Ricky and I are going to go north into Ecuador to, to target the Israeli hotspots there. So be praying for that as we approach. I kind of on a whim bought a round-trip ticket out of Miami on an international airline because I can't stand riding in American, with American carriers. I've been looking for a while. It got cheaper than it was, and I felt like I had to snag it. So I've got to get to Miami. And I'm probably going to drive down there because it's actually cheaper for me to pay the gas than it is for me to fly down there and back and then have to fly Ricky back to Charlotte. So 
I've got a place to leave the car. But if you guys can pray for that, there will probably, we won't get through these messages to the seven churches before I leave, but that's all right. In fact, I would encourage maybe while I'm gone, maybe one of the, uh, maybe one of the elders would want to try to teach one of those messages. That'd be great because I certainly don't have a monopoly on truth and don't know everything and probably am missing some things here. So anyway, uh, let's, let's pray for the food. Um, and if there's any discussion, we can talk about it over the meal. And uh, I'm never, I never want to be a preacher who's unwilling to entertain questions. Uh, so don't think you can't approach me and ask me or question maybe something I said or, or, um, or uh, my interpretation of something. I'm always willing to be shown or, or ask questions and to be shown if possibly I've looked at something incorrectly. So um, don't be afraid to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this day, another Lord's Day to worship You. Even though it's been long, we thank You for the abundant spiritual feast, the abundant spiritual buffet that is Your Word. Lord, may we go from here full, and may it be not empty calories, but solid, protein-like calories, Lord, that stays with us the rest of the day and as we walk for You this next week. Lord, please protect us from that spirit of Jezebel, Lord. May we never come to a place where we actually think that we're serving You by living in a way that contradicts Your Word. And if we do, Lord, have mercy on us and bring us to repentance. Even as You exhorted the, those that committed adultery with that spirit to do. Thank You that You are a God of mercy and that You do warn before You pass judgment. Thank You that You're not like the gods of men who serve themselves and do their own things. You're a merciful God and You demonstrated that most when You sent Jesus Christ in our place to satisfy Your righteousness, to fulfill Your law, and to conquer death, hell, and the grave that we may have life. Thank You for salvation that's secure, not something that's empty and transitory like what is preached by man-made religion. And thank You that even though you warn us. You use these warnings and scriptures to keep us pure, to preserve us, Lord. And it's all about you, Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. May this food we partake of give us nutrients and strength. May our time around the table be one of fellowship and edification one to another. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.